Hello and welcome to a scholarly meeting where scholars and students can meet to discuss all things ethics. Today we have Dr. Winslow with us. Um, Dr. Winslow is the director of the Center for Christian Bioethics at Loma Linda University. He is also the founding director for the Institute of Health Policy and Leadership. He got his bachelor's in religion from Walla Walla University, which he does love that university a lot. He got his MA in religion from Andrews University, which is my university that I went to. And then um, he got his PhD in social ethics from Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. Correct. And he also happens to be my boss. <laughs> so thank you so much for agreeing to be our first guest and welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Martha, for the invitation. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about Christian social ethics. And I read a, I think it's a chapter in a book that you wrote um, about the prophetic minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and talked about um, Seventh-day Adventists and our, maybe not job, but our obligation mm -hmm. to certain um, social issues. And it was really interesting, so I want to talk about Christian social ethics. Okay. Yes. So, can you please tell us what is social ethics? Well, let's just take those two words apart for a moment. Mm -hmm. Ethics, we can simplify ethics a lot. I, I really think little children get pretty good at ethics, uh, especially when they ask the question, why? Mm -hmm. Next time you meet up with a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you'll notice that they're pretty good at that question. <laughs> why? Why should, we, why should we do things this way? And... Uh, Ethics is a lot about asking why um, we should act a certain way. What, what does it mean to be a good person? Um, to do the right thing? To live a virtuous life? That's individual ethics. It has to do with the character of a person. Mm -hmm. But social ethics has to do with the character of a society, a whole group. Sometimes when we think of society, we're thinking of a nation state, like the United States of America or Canada or other nation states, but um, actually p human beings create society wherever they come together. So you may think of your local town or city or even an institution within which people work. Those are all social institutions. Mm -hmm. And social ethics has to do with the virtues of a group interacting together. Does that, is that group characterized by fairness? Is there, uh, is there a commitment to the well-being of all the members of the group? So that, is it, is it a kind of social arrangement that is fair to everyone mm -hmm. and respectful of everyone? So social ethics has to do with that life together and the way we create the social institutions that, that support our, our shared life. Okay, so how would, um Christian social ethics differ from social ethics as a whole? Or at least should yeah. be different? Um, Christian ethics asks all the same questions I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a good person living in a good society? But the answers come from an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. And for those of us who are Christians, he's also Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. 
And to follow Jesus has some fairly radical implications for the way we live our lives individually and also in social groups. So Christian social ethics has to do with answering the question, what does it mean to live in human society as a person of faith in Jesus? What would it, what, and, and, and I think sometimes, again, we tend to go straight to something like the nation state, but really the church is the first exhibit of social ethics for Christians because the church is where Christians come together to gather as the, the called out ones, the ecclesia as the New Testament calls it, those who've been called together to follow Jesus. And the way we um, create a sense of fairness together, a sense of inclusion, a sense of respect, and for to use the Christian word, a sense of love or charity for all, that's the first exhibit of Christian social ethics. It's really the social life of those who are the church, the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then what does it mean for that church to live in, in a society? Because any social group, whether it's a church or the local, the local affinity club, the local book club or whatever, uh, has the potential for influencing the community that surrounds it. And the church, I believe, has a prophetic responsibility to be influential in whatever culture we find ourselves in, whatever, whatever larger society, to make that society, if possible, more reflective of God's love. Mm-hmm. But what happens if, let's say, you live in a society where Christian social ethics, I mean, I'm sure there isn't a society like this in the world that's perfect. But let's say you had a perfect society where everything was fair. What would be the need for a Christian social ethics? Well, you're right. Such a society doesn't exist. But uh, if it did exist, we have a vision of what it would look like. Mm -hmm. And that vision, which is, one might say from a Christian point of view, the vision we have of the eternal kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Well, for one thing, everybody's included. Nobody gets left out. Um, Everybody counts. And and as one person put it, everybody counts for one and nobody counts for more than one uh, because there is a sense in which, from a Christian point of view, God as creator has made all of us family through the creation event. And then for those of us who are Christians, has made us brothers and sisters again through salvation. Mm -hmm. So if there were a perfect society that exhibited that perfect inclusiveness, fairness, respect, and dare we say it, love, then the kingdom of God would have arrived. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is it hasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live in a world where people are constantly discriminated against, left out, the vulnerable especially. And Christian social ethics specializes in giving strategic attention to the ones who are vulnerable, the ones who are left out, the ones who are on the edges of society. And one doesn't have to look very far in any society I know of on the earth to find those people. I'm looking out a window here at, in Loma Linda on a rainy day, and I can look in the direction of a community of people with great need. There are over 40,000 people who live in our area. 
uh, who are food insecure, we call them. They, they don't know for sure that they will have adequate nutrition through their, their week or their month because their resources are not sufficient to guarantee them that basic nutritional security. Mm-hmm. So that's how far we are from the perfect kingdom that we were talking about. It's as basic as not knowing where the next meal is coming from. Mm-hmm. And Christians surely have a responsibility to help address issues of that sort. So what about, okay, so what if you have differing opinions in the church? So there are, pe- there are people who think it is our responsibility to go out and help, um, whether it's by giving food or providing jobs. Mm-hmm. Then there are others who are more of, People need to work harder mm-hmm. to get what they need. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of balance those views that are both apparent in the church? I think I understand what you mean. Um, it's true that some people seem to have a, a greater capacity for compassion and maybe are a little better at being able to imagine themselves as the one who is disadvantaged, as mm-hmm. the one who is the least well-off. I think Jesus tells a very interesting story in that regard that we refer to as the rich man and Lazarus. I would encourage people to go and read that story sometime. But the, the, the truth is that Christians are called to be compassionate and to imagine what it would be like to be the other one if you think about Jesus in what we call the golden rule, people want to look it up by the, the numbers. It's Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. But imagine what others might do to you. And then Jesus says what you would, ha- what you would want others to do for you, you should do for them. It's a basic notion of reciprocity. I don't think that, I don't think that anybody who calls himself or herself a Christian is exempt from basic notions like love your neighbor as yourself, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, people may apply that in different ways, but if you, sometimes when I hear people use the language of, well, if only they were more responsible or would work harder, most of the people who are, let's just go back to nutritional insecurity since I used that example already, most of those people have various kinds of disabilities or handicaps. They may have problems with mental illness and homelessness. Mm -hmm. They may be disabled physically in some ways. A large percentage of them are frail elderly people Mm -hmm. and children. And so it's, if people will stop to think, yeah, what what I'm, (laughs) I have this strong work ethic and what I want is for these three-year-olds to get out and work harder. Or for this frail 90-year-old who's having trouble getting enough nutrition Mm -hmm. to get out there and get a job, most people are not, they are thinking about lazy, able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. And I won't say that there are none of those, but I will say just based on the evidence, they are a very small minority of the people who need the help we're talking about. Okay, so we've discussed um, food. What other types of social problems do you think Christians have the responsibility to address? Hmm. I like that question because 
you and I work in an environment of healthcare, mm-hmm. and in fact, we work in a, an environment of faith-inspired healthcare. And to be more specific, we work in an environment of faith that's rooted in Jesus, um, and healthcare that grows out of that faith. Mm-hmm. So that's the right context to ask that question, and for us because that's our social location and. Uh, our professional commitment. Um, what we realize more and more in healthcare, and I think we will continue to realize this more fully, and that is our efforts in healthcare are defeated day in and day out by social factors over which people have very little personal control. So we may say to someone, take this, get this medication, you're going to be needing it, you should take it three times a day with a meal. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of a standard thing that might happen to somebody who's ill. And then you discover, well, they don't have any transportation to get to the medication. And if they got there, they wouldn't have any money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then if they actually got to the medication, they, are not, they, they may not have three meals a day to take. So you can see, begin to see how our work in healthcare will often be defeated by what's what are com- have come to be called social determinants social fact i don't like the word determinant so much because it sounds like uh, there's nothing you can do about it no there's social factors that can be addressed and successful healthcare systems in the future whether christian or not are going to learn to address those social factors more effectively if they intend to provide healthcare that's ef- that is effective um, it's it's a matter of accomplishing our mission so I'm, I'm very encouraged by the fact that the most forward-looking health systems in, in the United States, the country I know the best, are really beginning to address these social factors as a part of the healthcare ministry. Mm-hmm. What, so what? Well, they're asking questions about social factors when they are providing the healthcare, so it becomes part of the patient's record. And then they're finding clever ways efficient ways to help address those issues so that the, the work we do in healthcare isn't isn't frustrated and defeated by those social factors that get in the way. I think that's a Christian responsibility. I would also say to those who are not Christian, it's smart. It's smarter, it works better. Mm-hmm. So I think we can make alliances with others who may have other faith commitments or no faith commitment because it's pretty basic that most people want health. It's, if, if you don't have it, you want it back. And uh, if you do have it, you want to protect it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a unifying factor that helps us to focus in a very practical way on, uh, on a responsibility that we have to each other to, to be compassionate. But I think it's, it's for Christians, it really goes to the heart of what it means to follow somebody who, who said at the end of one of his sermons, I was, I was sick and you visited me. I, I was hungry and you fed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sermon, by the way, begins by predicting that there will be problems with famines and illnesses that are epidemic and earthquakes and wars and so forth. And imagine a sermon that starts by talking about famines and illness, epidemic, and, and ends by talking about, I was hungry, and I was sick, and I was in prison. All of those things at the end of that sermon, you can read all of this in Matthew 24 and chapter 25, 
all of those things fit together so that you find out a fairly dire prediction about how human societies go and they do go that way. You also find a very clear call to service on the part of those who follow Jesus. So for many of my friends, one of the issues that they have with the church is that at a time like this, when there's a lot of social uh, social problems currently with immigration or with um, treating the L- treating certain people differently, mm-hmm. like um, black people, L- people of um, LGBT community, and a lot of my friends, their biggest issue with the church is that the church seems quiet. Mm. When you're right, we are called to serve, um, but the church seems quiet about these things. Yeah. And when we ask questions, we're told that it's too political, mm. that the church shouldn't be in politics. What do you? What is your response to that? Well. Um... I might surprise you and disappoint you even by saying uh, if if by politics mm-hmm. we mean partisan politics, like which political party you support and champion, mm-hmm. then I'm going to agree with those who say that we should avoid taking partisan political stands on the basis of our Christian faith. Mm-hmm. The, the the faith in Jesus does not separate out into to what our traditional political parties in, in the country that we know best here right now, we have two major parties. One's called Republicans and one's called Democrats. But in other countries, you have many different names mm-hmm. and sometimes many different parties. Um, there's nothing about faith in Jesus that automatically aligns one with a, with partisan politics. And I think it's worth remembering that those political parties change over time. They are not guided by the same principles that we are guided by in the Gospels. So I would separate faith in Jesus and social ethics for Christians from partisan politics. Having said that, I have to immediately add that Christians are always going to be engaged in political issues not on the basis of partisan politics, but on the basis of principle. We are going to take a stand in favor of racial justice. Mm-hmm. Not because we align with one party or another, who knows which party is going to be better at that. Um, that seems to vary over time, and you can do quite a history of that in, in the culture here that I'm in currently. But the fact is that that's not optional for Christians. The Bible says, that God created all of the human family and that a failure to recognize that in the form of racism, and we can add quickly sexism, nationalism, and a whole bunch of other kinds of isms. I would even put in humanism because humanism, as it's sometimes called, prefers humans, but there are also the non-living members of our society. I mean, the non-human members of our society who are also living. And Everything is included in God's creation as worthy of our care and human beings in a special way because they are the children of God in God's image. So a failure to recognize that in the form of of racism, for example, is 
functionally atheism. Race, racism is atheism be, functionally because a failure to recognize the fact that we are all human siblings created by God and, and equally valuable to God is a failure to recognize God as creator. Oh, wow. it's, a, it's a demonstration of the fact that we actually don't believe in God as the one who made all of us in God's image. The same could be said about sexism and a lot of other kinds of isms. The, the one thing that's common to all of those that's, that are so often at the heart of injustice is that they're exclusionary. They value our, however we see ourselves, they value, they value myself and my type, whatever that's supposed to be. Maybe it's American, um, maybe, it's, maybe it's Caucasian, whatever that means. Maybe it's my gender. Maybe it's my um, sexual orientation. All of those are ways of favoring some of God's children and seriously discriminating against others. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's functionally atheistic. It also really is completely counter to the gospel of Jesus. You know, St. Paul, the apostle, said in a very famous passage in the third chapter of his letter to the Galatians, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, we, we get to inherit that, that tradition, and you're heirs according to the gospel, and in Christ, Jesus has taught us, and Paul says this in Galatians, there isn't any more male or female, there isn't any more free or bond, there isn't any more Jew or Greek. And he could have gone on. He could have named other kinds of distinctions. The, the order in which Paul gives those, there isn't any more Jew or Greek. That's the one he names first. That was the preeminent issue for the early church, whether you ha how Jewish did you have to be mm -hmm. to be a Christian. And very Jewish Christians wanted to exclude Gentile Christians and did so by imposing on them all sorts of difficult practices. That was the issue that occupied Paul significantly in his letter to the Romans and to the Galatians. He had to deal with that first. What's the next one in his list? There isn't any more free or bond. How long did it take the Christian church to give up on slavery? Uh, from my point of view, a disastrously long time. There were still people as late as a couple of hundred years ago in this society who were defending slavery on the basis of Christianity. And so Historically, we got to that much later, I, I would say uh, disturbingly later. And what about the last part of the text? There's no more male or female. I think we're still working on that one. Mm. Actually, I think we're probably still working on aspects of all of them because now in the Jew-Greek distinction, there's a lot of anti-Semitism uh, uh, yeah. towards Jews. Uh, just to pick out that example. And certainly there are other kinds of slavery today that go on, human trafficking and so forth. We're not finished with that, and we should be. And we have not come to equality for, uh, for male and female. And some days it feels like we're making progress and other days not. But it's not optional for Christians. That's, that's a key point for Christian social ethics. We have a pretty clear mandate on these things. Mm -hmm. And it's not partisan politics, it's principled Christian faith. 
Those are powerful words. <laughs> so what what can young people in the church um, do to I guess to sort of follow their 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 personal calling about social mm-hmm. justice? Mm-hmm. Um, when they when they feel like the church is being silent, what do you think they can do? How can they uh, talk to church leaders? How can they work with the church with that? Because I know that um, some of my friends are leaving the church because of that. I understand, and I mourn that fact. I'm, I'm distressed by it. But what I would want to say to young people, including you, um, is that everything we're talking about here in this conversation by way of developing a commitment to social ethics, social fairness, social respect, um, social compassion, all of those virtues that we want to have be part of any society in which we're working and living, all of those can be exhibited first and foremost at the local level. You've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, think globally, but act locally, Mm -hmm. words to that effect. Yeah, another phrase that's fairly common is that all politics is local. Well, I would say all social ethics is first of all exhibited locally. So, So what? Well, what it means is that young people can have a a powerful influence in a local church, for example. They can help set the agenda in the local church through their engagement. They can create in the local church a welcoming environment for people uh, who are racially diverse, people who are ethnically diverse, people who are um, diverse in their expression of their sexuality, um, and may identify in as some in the LGBT community, as you put it. Um, they can make sure that the church is a welcoming community for those who are poor, as though as well as those who are rich, for those who are less educated, as well as those who are highly educated. Young people probably are better at that. In my in my experience, they're more sensitive on those issues. They're less willing to put up with unfair discrimination than many of their older brothers and sisters. So I would say form those alliances, have, have your own discussion groups, get involved with the church, become a leader to the extent that, that you can, um, and change that local church environment. Because I have to think that way all the time when I can look at the whole world. Uh, I'm not going to have a big influence on, say, the United Nations or even a worldwide church like my own. I'm a relatively small voice in, in that setting. I may have some little influence, but I can have some influence in a local congregation. I can also, on the political level, without going back to, this is not going to be what I'm going to say next, is not an espousal of partisan politics, but I can find out which politicians better reflect the principles that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And I can support them in those efforts. Um, Now, there aren't any perfect ones, but people sometimes despair at the national level or the world level. Yeah, get involved locally. It's much more hopeful. 
and you'll be surprised at how much impact you can have at that level. And if you have something that works there, it very often then has an influence by being exemplary elsewhere. And that's the way I think it generally works. I, very few of us could dream up some program that would just change the whole state of California where we're sitting today or change the United States or change the worldwide church that owns and operates Loma Linda University. Uh, few of us have that kind of authority. But we, we can brighten the corners where we are pretty effectively. Start there. It's a lot more fun, too, I must say. <laughs> okay, so what is, in, in terms of social ethics, what is um, your hope for the church in the future? Hmm. Well, I, I want my church to exhibit that, what some people call primitive godliness. Let me just say the basic Christ-likeness, that is to be like Jesus to, in my view, what that means is we will be a prophetic minority. I don't, I think most of us who are serious about faith in Jesus realize that we will always be out of step with the dominant culture we're in for a whole bunch of reasons. The dominant culture we're in most places around the world is is disastrously materialistic and it's, it's wedded to stuff and having more of it and more of it uh, in, a, in a mad dash for more things. The church and the people in it are never going to, if, if they're faithful, are never going to be just committed to that kind of ethic which is really very selfish and self-absorbed. And so I want to see my church be a prophetic voice and to create an alternative community of faith that truly is welcoming. Welcoming in the way that we said earlier to people who are different from us. And you know, I see in my own local church, I happen to go to the university church here on our campus, and I look around and I realize we're not perfect, but we have become much more welcoming to people of great diversity. Mm -hmm. And I hope we will continue to do that and exhibit in the life of the church at least a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And um, is there any, like, any words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Anything? Well... After this conversation, I know, like there's a lot that you said. A, there, so yeah, know. let me just say that I am constantly energized and renewed in my own faith commitments by the enthusiasm, the integrity, and often the heartfelt commitments of young people like yourself who don't give up, who, who actually, against sometimes discouraging odds, find new ways to exhibit and, and, and manifest faithfulness, and, and, who, and who by their commitments actually are a witness to those of us who've been at it a lot longer. I, uh, my, my last word, I guess, would be, 
Yeah, never give up on that because it may be easy to think, oh, some big shot someplace else has the control of the future. No, those big shots other places are usually nearer the end of their t their term of office or their leadership. And you folks who are more your age do hold the future. Do a good job with it. So thank you so much for listening to a scholarly meeting. We hope you will join us on our next episode.